I want, I want, I want me, 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 mine, 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 now, now, now. You know you're responsible for what you hear. You know you're responsible for what you hear. Greetings and welcome to Thoughts from Meharry Head, the weekly podcast where I talk about, well, whatever happens to be bouncing around inside my head at the moment, but mostly focusing on constitutional issues and political decentralization. This is episode 34 of Thoughts from Meharry Head, and I appreciate you tuning in. This week, I'm going to talk about what the Constitution says about federal lands. Well, last week, I shared some of the things I learned on my recent trip to Burns, Oregon. Primarily the way the trip underscored the absurdity of having bureaucrats thousands of miles away manage land. Like I said last week, why you would want a monopoly institution like the federal government controlling millions of square miles is beyond me. Of course, we could endlessly debate whether or not it's a good idea for the feds to be in the land management business. But before we do that, we should probably settle a more basic question. Does the federal government have the constitutional authority to manage vast tracts of land? The simple answer is no, absolutely not. So today I'm going to take a closer look at what the Constitution says about federal land ownership. Now, I owe most of the scholarship that I'm going to refer to to Rob Nadelson. He is one of the best there is when it comes to uncovering the original meaning of the Constitution. He wrote a scholarly paper on the subject of federal land ownership based on years of research. I'll link to that paper in the show notes, and I highly recommend you take the time to read it if you really want to understand the federal government's role in land management. Now, the issue of federal land is only mentioned in two places in the Constitution. The first is commonly known as the Enclave Clause, and it's found in Article 1, Section 8. The first part of this clause delegates Congress the power to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district, not exceeding 10 miles square, as may, by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress, become the seat of the government of the United States. This gave Congress the authority to establish and administer a national capital. The only stipulation was that the states had to agree to cede the land to the federal government. This gives governmental jurisdiction to the feds, but it must acquire title separately. It's interesting to note that while Washington, D.C. is a federal enclave, there are many privately owned areas within our borders. The federal government doesn't own D.C. in its entirety, but it does maintain exclusive jurisdiction. Now, today, this isn't the least bit controversial, but during the ratification debates, there was concern that a federal capital encompassing 100 miles was going to be way too big. 
In fact, during the New York Ratifying Convention, Thomas Treadwell said it was destined to become a political hive where all the drones in the society are to be collected to feed on the honey of the land. Yeah, that sounds about right. So the Enclave Clause goes on to delegate Congress the power to exercise like authority over all places purchased by the consent of the legislature of the state in which the same shall be for the erection of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings. So in other words, if the Army wants to build a base, the state has to agree to cede the land to the federal government. Once that happens, the feds maintain complete governmental jurisdiction over that area. So this is just another way of creating smaller enclaves. Again, pretty straightforward. The other place that we find the issue of federal land addressed in the Constitution is in the Property Clause, Article 4, Section 3, Clause 2. It reads, Congress shall have power to dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the United States. This delegates the federal government unconditional power to dispose of property and the authority to regulate what is already held. It does not mention acquiring territory. That actually comes through the treaty powers. The feds retain complete control over territories, but once states are formed out of these territories, the federal government has a duty to dispose of tracts not used for enumerated purposes. Now, enumerated purposes is the key phrase here. The federal government has the authority to retain other property within a state as long as it corresponds with one of its delegated powers. So as Nadelson put it, under the Necessary and Proper Clause, the federal government may acquire and retain land necessary for carrying out its enumerated powers within a state. So this would include parcels for things like post offices or federal courthouses, buildings to house federal employees that are undertaking enumerated functions, and the like. It is not necessary to form federal enclaves for all of these purposes. But this is not some kind of general grant of power for the feds to retain millions of acres of land for whatever purposes some politician or bureaucrats cook up. The Constitution delegates no authority to retain acreage for unenumerated purposes, such as land for grazing, mineral development, agriculture, forests, or even national parks. Today, the federal government holds title to about half of the territory in the eight Rocky Mountain states, the West Coast states, and Alaska. Half. The federal share of ownership ranges from about 30% in some states to up to 88%. That's a staggering amount of land, mostly held unconstitutionally. Under the Constitution, the federal government must divest itself of all land that is not used for enumerated purposes— those set forth explicitly in the Constitution. It's as simple as that. As Nadelson explains, the Constitution doesn't specify how the federal government must dispose of land. It could conceivably sell it or even give it away. If you read the ratification debates, you will find that there was a general expectation that land would be sold in order to pay off federal debts. That's not such a bad idea, considering the federal government is like, what, $20 trillion in debt? Regardless, there are fundamental principles the federal government must adhere to when disposing of the land. This is how Nadelson explains it. In the process of disposal, the federal government must follow the rules of public trust. 
It would be a breach of fiduciary duty for the feds to simply grant all of its surplus property to state governments. Each tract must be disposed of in accordance with the best interests of the American people. For example, natural wonders in environmentally sensitive areas, such as those now encompassed by national parks, might be conveyed under strict conditions to state park authorities or, as in Britain, to perpetual environmental trusts. Lands useful only for grazing, mining, or agriculture should be sold or homesteaded, with or without restrictions. The restrictions might include environmental protection, public easements, and protection for hunters and anglers. So in other words, the federal government should divest itself of the land and use normal contractual terms that any private organization would. Okay, I can hear the hue and cry now. Is this Meharry guy suggesting the federal government shouldn't run our wonderful national parks? Yes, that's exactly what I'm suggesting. And the BLM and the Forestry Service shouldn't be managing millions of acres either. It's not a question of whether it's a good idea. It's an issue of constitutionality. And if you care about constitutional rule of law, then there is no argument. At some point, you have to stand on principle. James Madison did. He was in favor of federal funding for infrastructure, including roads and canals. But his last act of president was to veto a bill that would have authorized just such programs, writing, The permanent success of the Constitution depends on a definite partition of powers between general and state governments, and that no adequate landmarks would be left by the constructive extension of the powers of Congress as proposed in this bill. You see, maintaining the federal government within its prescribed powers matters. If you let it overstep its bounds in one case, you're letting it do so in every case because you're setting that precedent. So whether or not you agree with the tactics of the ranchers in Burns, Oregon, that a constitutional case is indisputable. The federal government is exercising undelegated power, I believe with disastrous effects. Simply put, the federal government is breaking the highest law of the land. You should remember this fact the next time somebody starts talking about lawless ranchers. Well, that's it for this episode of Thoughts from Meharry Head. We're another 10 minutes closer to freedom. I really appreciate you listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please do me a favor and spread the word. Make sure you head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast there. And feel free to send me any thoughts or ideas at michael.meharry at 10 Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.